go. Green means go. I did not wear this tie or these socks or put this pin on to cause any strife. This evening, I just like it. And my wife said it looks good. Now, this morning I wore it at Willette, and we're giving each other a hard time. One of my good friends, he's an Alabama fan, and we stood there between Bible class and worship, and he's giving me a hard time, and I always tell him one day I'm going to preach on foul language because he's always saying nasty words. He's saying things like, roll tide, we don't, that's filthy language. We don't speak that way. So we're joking, and I looked at him, and I said, at least we're not low-down, dirty center Tennessee fans. We just joke. We just joke. I'm glad to be here this evening to see all of you and I'm so glad to be able to be involved in the India work that you've been involved in so long. Many of you as individuals support the work. Of course, the elders continue to support the work, the congregation. Thankful so much for your involvement in the work. Very excited to share with you what's going on in India. We will get into the Bible in just a few moments. Well, this is what I thought when we were in India and we were going from place to place. I couldn't help but think of Esther 4, where Mordecai says, for such a time as this. And we'll get into that in just a few moments. We leave out of Rampa. That's one of the cities I'll show you in the map in a little bit. You go over this mountain road, and the road is the worst road I've ever seen in my whole life. It is not necessarily a paved road. And I am not exaggerating to you that some of the potholes are large enough that if your car toppled over in it, you would probably never get your car turned over again. And there are big trucks that are going over this mountain, and it's chaotic, and sometimes you wonder if you're going to make it to the other side. And on our way, we're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere, nowhere. There's no electrical, electrical poles. There's no signs of life, but a little bit of trash on the road. And I'm riding in the car with John, and he tells the driver to stop, and he points over to the side of the road, and there's this little dirt path and some trash. He said, Brother, that road leads to a village where there are five Christians. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And he says, Brother, that's the only way to get to that village. And it was 15 kilometers from that point where we were by foot. We pass over that mountain, we get to this area, and there is a scenic overlook, and we stop and look, and I brought this picture home, my wife, family members, everybody says, that's amazing. I said, that's India. That's India. There are many sites like that. It's a beautiful place. When we arrive in the airport, this is one of many, many, many idols that you see. Hand car, very beautiful set up there in the airport. But as soon as you enter into India, you find out they're idols. And they're a nation of idols. We're out driving in the country in the middle of the crop fields. There may be an idol 40 to 50 feet high, and it has something to do with agriculture or rain or so forth. And this idol and the delicate work of that idol and all those plants around it, that's India. This is just for fun. In the airport in Delhi, there are uh, several American restaurants. Well, we call it American restaurants. There's Subway, KFC, uh, McDonald's. This is from McDonald's. And in McDonald's, you can have chicken or you can have chicken. And sometimes on the menu, they have chicken. They don't eat beef. That's against the Hindu religion to eat beef, so it's chicken. And it's interesting, they serve a nine-piece chicken nugget. Not six, not ten, not twenty, but nine-piece chicken nugget. I don't know why. But I wanted you to know a little bit about what it's like over there. I ordered a nine-piece nugget. You don't order the meal. You order the nine-piece nugget, the fry is separate, and the drink separate. You don't order it all together. 
And so that comes out with tax and everything to 425 rupees and 26 cents. That's just a little over $5. You couldn't get that in the States. You have to pay for your sauces, and I got two sauces, so I had to pay for that also. So a little bit different. Just wanted to share that with you. And then you see this. We laugh about it, but really it's serious because there are many people that die because they're trying to hook up the line from their house to the pole to get electricity. and do so illegally, but they're trying to get power to their house, and many people die, and you see why. Because they have all those wires just strung from everywhere. A monkey touches it, there goes a monkey. A bird lands on it wrong, there's a puff of feathers. But that's what it looks like. That's in tuning right outside of the house that we stay in. You look out there and you see that pole and all those lines running to it. That's life in India. Thank you for continual support. Thank you for loving the Lord and wanting to do His will. Tell your elders thank you. Give them a hug. Pat them on the back. They're your overseers. They look after your soul and they see fit to use the monies that you give the Lord. And they do so cheerfully and we're so very thankful for that support remember in april we went that was my first trip i was a school teacher so i couldn't go at the times they always go it's not advisable to go in the summertime even in april when we went it was over 100 degrees every day so in april we were very successful you may remember we preached in 38 villages 394 conversions while we were there and in the following weeks into may there were 230 plus more conversions because of the work that was done in July and August, when Brother John was here in August, I was trying to remember the last time I was here, it was in August. And so I believe he mentioned a little bit about the flood relief. I'll show you some pictures later. But $76,000 towards flood relief. And not a dime, a penny, rupee of that was wasted. It was very, very needed. And you and I may never know the full measure of what that money did to encourage the brothers and sisters over there or to glorify God for those who are not Christians and receive some aid. In November, we left on the 7th and arrived back on the 18th, I believe, 17th or 18th. There were 207 baptisms. A little bit different this time because we did not go and village preach like we did in April. So we didn't go to 38 villages. We primarily were involved in three preacher lectureships, and then Brother Steve Draper, one of the elders that we let, went with us, and he was going and preaching in some villages and opening up some church buildings. 207 baptisms. An incredible number. Anytime a soul is saved, converted to Christ, it's a great day. There were 207 baptisms. We opened 12 church buildings, and we had three preacher lectureships. And we may never know the full extent of that work and the fruit that will be produced from that work. I wanted to share this. Last week at Willette, I shared some very, very important and great information about some of the buildings that we opened over there. And I'll share this tonight because when this took place in the organization of being here tonight, we did not know that Brother Bill was going to have surgery. And so he'll find out about this. I was hoping he'd be here in person, but it didn't work out. But Brother Steve Draper went to open this building in this location, and this building was built in honor of Brother Bill. All the years he served as a coordinator of the work, and that says something about this congregation also. We wanted to build a building in honor of him, I know that he won't like that. That's not who he is. He wouldn't want a building built. He wouldn't want all that done for him, but we wanted to do it for him. And so we were very excited to be able to do that. And so Brother Steve opened that building there. 
And you'll see this picture here of many of the members standing up there and the plaque outside. And Brother Bill is going to get a picture of this. He'll have this. We have it framed for him. We'll get it to him before long. We wanted to honor him. We honored Jack and the work that he did in building a building for him. And many of you know Brother Tim Smith. He went to India many times. He was a member there at Willet. And we honored him by building a building in memory of Brother Tim Smith. And there are other buildings that were built. I wanted to share this with you. And I wish that Brother Bill could be here this evening. There was another location. I wish Brother John, I'm pretty sure he's watching a live stream. We went to a location we passed by. And, and anytime you pass by and you see Church of Christ, it catches your eye. Especially if it's a new place you're not familiar with. And you see the... The quilt back there, you know those buildings that are in Jackson County. What about if you're in another country? And you're passing along and you say, whoa, Church of Christ, I see that on the sign. And I looked very close and asked the driver to slow down. And sure enough, John Mayberry opened that building in 2012. And I don't know if he remembers that or not. He may. But what's interesting about this building and that village, it's a little bitty village. I mean, it, it, there's not much in that location. You go down the road, probably not even a mile, and there's another church building down there. When we asked, Brother, why is this so? And they said, this village was adamant. They wanted to have a church building. It was a big deal to them to have a building. And Brother John may remember more about this. We opened that building November 15th of 2012. So I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to share that. And I'm sure he'll see that if he's watching online. For such a time as this is the theme this year, as I mentioned earlier, when we're there in India, we're thinking about so many scriptures and the Bible and so many things become more real when you see a different country. You see what life is like. And I say this so often, the things that Jesus said, the things the apostles did, what life was like in the first century, that's what so, so many times that's what's like, what life is like in India. They're not 2,000 years behind, it's just that some things are more practical and meaningful in India when you see the way they live and the way they think about things. That's not to say that we're bad and they're so much better, but there are so many things. And so as we're going along from place to place, I couldn't help but think of this passage. Just a quick overview of the book of Esther. There's something very unique about this book of the Bible that is so different from all of the rest of the books. You study the book of Esther, you taught this, you know automatically what's the most unique thing about it is that the fact that God's name is not mentioned in this book. Of all the books we have in the Bible, this is the only book that God's name is not mentioned. That does not mean he is not present. For years and years and years, it is believed this book was written through the Spirit of God, and that we have this book now, and there is much to be learned from it. In chapters 1 through 4, you have King Xerxes. He's a Persian king, and the Jews are living under his rule. Esther is his wife of all the women in the kingdom. They went before King Xerxes, and he chose her, a Jewess. She was very beautiful, but he chose her out of all the women. Maybe. This happened to be the most beautiful one. She presented herself well, and so he chose her of all the women. But she's a Jew. And yes, her people are in captivity, but... It was Haman that the problem lied in, not the captivity, because Haman was a man who sought to destroy the Jews. He wanted all of them wiped off the face of the earth. She's a Jewess. She's married to the king. She's living in the palace. And Haman is an evil man, and he wants to destroy everyone. And then you have Mordecai, who's also an important figure. He actually raised Esther. He is her cousin and also, say, an adoptive father. And he is a very good man. He seeks to do what is right, 
and he wants God's people to not be destroyed. And so he is doing what he can to communicate with Esther while she is in the palace. And so we get to Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Mordecai knows of Haman's plan. Haman is going to destroy all the Jews, and he's going to use the king and the king's authority to do so. And so in Esther 4, verses 13 and 14, here are the words of Mordecai as he sent a message to Queen Esther. He says, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai trusted in God. And he knows whether you step up at this time, Esther, or God provides someone else to do so, deliverance will come. Notice his faith and trust in God. Deliverance will come. What do we learn from this? God's plan will be accomplished. We know it was because we read the book. But imagine you're there at that time, and you're in the palace, or you're a Jew in captivity, living in that place. Are you going to be afraid? Or are you going to trust that God will deliver us? And his plan will work. And it will be accomplished. Mordecai and Esther had no certainty. Notice Esther's, uh, Mordecai's words. Don't think that you and your family are going to escape just because you're in the palace. As if you don't do something, God will provide deliverance from somewhere else. They just trusted in God and believed it would happen, but there still was no certainty. It might not be his will to work through Esther. But Mordecai says, how do you not know that you were chosen, that you're here right now, though maybe the one and only person that can go before the king and save God's people? And he says, for such a time as this. When we're in India, and we're going from place to place, and we have the opportunities that are provided for us by God, and through the work of our brethren of there to set things up, how do we not know that we're in that location at that time and no other way it would ever work in any other time? We don't know. What are we going to do? What are you going to do in the opportunities, the situations that you're in? Are you going to step forward and say, I'll, I'll do whatever I can for you, God? Or will you be afraid or shun the opportunity? You don't know, and I don't know, that we're not here at this location at this time for such a time as this. We'll discuss four areas, and we think in mind for such a time as this. To think about the timing of things and really think about God's providence. What has he done for you and I? It's so easy to look back over time. I can look back in time, and I can see from the point that my wife and I were married, the children we had, the places we lived, the opportunities are provided for us. And I look back and I know God has always been with us. He's never left us because we've never left Him. And we can trust Him. And although you and I cannot see the future necessarily, we may know a certain thing is going to happen, but you and I cannot know for certainty. And so are we going to trust God and allow Him to work in our lives and to submit ourselves to His will? And that really is the point. Andhra Pradesh is the state in which we work in. It's highlighted there in red. It's in the southern part of India. Temperature-wise, the weather there is about like southern Florida, except in southern Florida, sometimes there is a crazy, crazy cold blast that comes from the Arctic and comes down into Florida in the months of December or January and freezes things 
and really does a lot of damage. That happened just a few weeks ago. We were in Texas, actually, when it happened here. And so things were a little cold in Texas, but not like it was around here. That won't happen in India. The weather cycles and systems don't work that way. But in the wintertime, it would be about like it is in Florida in the 80s. We were there. It was very nice. I think the highest temperature was 89, but the humidity was very low. I don't think I sweated except for the time we went inside of a church building. There was no air moving, and it was really stuffy, and we sweated a little bit then. But that's the location in which we work. It's a very long state. Most of the work that we are involved in, the places we go, is in the northern part of that state. And so I zoom in a little bit more on that. You can see here, here's the state, and you zoom in a little bit better. This is the Bay of Bengal. And so you have the city of Mumbai. You probably heard that. Delhi is way far in the north. That's about a four-and-a-half-hour flight, so that's the place we have to fly into. There is work going on in Andhra Pradesh, and now because of the schools that are in Andhra Pradesh, there are Christians in the Telangana state, and so there is some work that's taking place there. We do not travel over there, but in the future it may be so that we're able to do that, and also in some of the outlying areas where there has not been work before. We know there's faithful work down in the Tamil Nadu area. They speak Tamil down there. It's a different language. And I know there's work being done down there by faithful brethren. So there's work all over. There are congregations all over India. But primarily, we're working in this area here. So I'll show you one more picture. We fly into Vizak, or Vizak, Vizakaputnam. That's where we fly into. It's a pretty nice little airport. Very nice. Um, I don't know what you would know what to expect in a foreign country. When we fly into Delhi, it's really, really nice. So lots of English, and people speak English. And then when you get into Vizak, not as much English, but it's a very nice airport. You fly in, you feel very comfortable and safe. There's not a single time in India where I ever felt unsafe. Now, I'll drive into Nashville sometime this week, and there are places in Nashville I would feel unsafe, but not in India. Maybe it's my ignorance. Ignorance is bliss. So we fly into Vizak, and we drive down to Tuni. I know it's blocked, but you can see the marker there. We drive down to Tuni, and that is where one of the schools of preaching is, the Tuni School of Preaching. And that's a pretty good-sized place in Tuni, and there are congregations out in the country inside Tuni itself. There's a children's home there, and, of course, there's the school. They have about 25 students, and that school is a vital part of the work there because men are trained for two years, and then they're going to wherever they are needed. We were in Tuni for a lectureship, and then we went down to Katamuru. It is not labeled on the map. It's a smaller place. We went down to Katamuru, and so we didn't drive straight. It'd be nice if you could drive straight, but you do this. And you, sometimes you go over here and you go back over there, and you look and you say, wait, we're just by that mountain a second ago. Why? But you had to go around in a weird way because the way the roads are. So we went down to Katamuru. We were down there for a few days, and then we went up to Rampa. We mentioned Rampa or Tuni in the newsletter. The reason why it's called the Rampa and Tuni mission work is because those are the two major cities. And so the work extends way on down to Rajamundri and Kakanada and many, 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 many other places. So I just wanted to give you an idea, remind you about where the work takes place. The first location we went to was in Tuni. Brother Solomon, he is a member there. Actually, his picture right here, Brother Solomon has a house there. We stay in his house. He does not live in that house. He has given up that house so that when the Americans come to visit, we may stay in that home. He lives at the church building. The bottom floor here of the church building is where he lives, and the students also live there. And so we visit the students' rooms. They're very nice and clean. They don't have much they have to worry about cleaning up. They have a bed to sleep on, a little footlocker for a few of their belongings, but most of their time they're in the classroom studying or they're out preaching. 
And so the students live in the bottom floor here. There is a dispensary there, a health clinic for the students. The, uh, some of the widows are taught how to sew in the bottom floor of that building. And notice the sign they have for us there, welcoming us to the Bible lectureship. We were supposed to be there two days. The first day we did not arrive because we missed our flight. And we had to get up really early in the morning. The flight was supposed to leave at about 6.30, so we got up really early, and we didn't get to fly out until 2 in the afternoon. But we arrived the next day, and so we spent a day there. That's Brother Jimmy G. He's from the Cookville area, and he was with us. Brother Steve Draper was out preaching in villages and congregations around about the area. This Brother John, he was here in August. There's Brother John Anon. He is the director of the Tooney School of Preaching. If the Lord wills, he will be here later this year. He and Brother John will come. They'll arrive here and hopefully be able to go to PTP, and we'll make some visits, and we'll see you, Lord willing. At this location, there were two places. One of us would be in the church building, which is on the second floor. The other brother, Jimmy, here is in the bottom floor. There's a big room, and so there are preachers in both locations. And so as you're teaching the class, you'll see men and women walk in. It's not that they don't care what time things start. It's that it may have taken them a few hours to get there. So they arrive when they can come. And it's preachers primarily, but they're bringing their family members. They're bringing members of the congregation. They're bringing people who are not Christians to come and study the Bible. And some of them have traveled a long way. So Brother Jimmy is preaching here with the help of Brother John Anon the translator. And after each lesson, they provide opportunity for men to ask questions. And so you think when you're standing there, well, these are all preachers, these are all Christians, and so a man stands up and he asks a question, and you think, he's a Christian, he studies, he's just interested, and many times we find out the ones who ask questions are not Christians. They're denominational preachers. They're friends of Christians who have been invited to come there. And so you see, this is the church building. There it is filled with men and women who are studying the Word of God. We're teaching lessons uh, such as the authority of God, the authority of Christ, the one tr church of the New Testament, premillennialism, uh, forgiveness and repentance. Those are some of the lessons that we taught. For such a time as this, maybe we think, well, it's all Christians. There'll be a good Bible study. There'll be many Christians here, and they'll be edified and be able to go back and teach the things that they taught. But then the Lord's invitation is offered, and they're not preachers that are responding to the invitation. There are women who have been invited to come and to study the Bible, and they're hearing these, le these lessons. They're hearing the truth of the Scripture, and the Lord's invitation is always offered. And so for such a time as this, you have several women who wanted to be baptized, have their sins washed away. You have these two young men, and they said, Brother, these are preacher's sons that came and studied. For such a time as this, in Tooney, when we thought we were teaching the preachers, and maybe in our mind it's, it, it's, there's nothing wrong, we're thinking it's all preachers, there are people there who have not heard the gospel. And that's a reminder for us. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, we need not forget everyone, everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs the opportunity to hear it. And how do you not know that you're living where you live, you work the job that you work, you have the relationships that you have for such a time as this. Maybe only you could impact that person you come in contact with. Think about a family member. You know them better than anyone else. I don't, and I would sit down with anyone and study the Bible. But maybe only you can say the right words and know that person well enough to say, 
Let's study the Bible together. Let's talk about your past. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. How do you not know that you are where you are for such a time as this? And that that person only comes to know the truth because of who you are in your relationship with them. The second location we went to is Katamuru. This is inside the church building here. This situation is a little different. It's a village, not really a big city. Um, there are quite a bit of people there. and We drive into the village, and I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. The road is just wide enough for the car to drive. And on either side of the road is a, is a little ditch, a drainage ditch, about two feet deep. And if you're not careful turning the car, and several times you have to stop, you have to ask somebody to move their motorcycle out of the way, or you get somebody out of the car to watch and make sure you're not going to drive off in the ditch. But we weave along through here, and finally you arrive, and this is a pretty big location. This is about 100, if I counted right, there are about 100 men in here. But what you don't see is all of the people that are out back, younger men and women, some of them who are cooking, that's where they cook outside, and they're sitting outside. There's probably 50 outside there. And what you don't also see is outside of this room right here is a very big tent set up, and there's probably two times as many. There's probably 200 or so outside of this building that are not sitting inside. And again, it's intended to be a preacher lectureship. But we found out that some of these men are denominational preachers, not Christians at all. They've never been obedient to the gospel. This is the upstairs. That building, you just saw the pictures back there. So if you walked out of that building to the back and up the stairs, this is where the second school is that's supported. This is the Herald School of Biblical Instruction. And as I've explained it before, this is the school where men who were denominational preachers, they become New Testament Christians, become obedient to the gospel. They understand this Bible teaches there but one church, and they want to be a part of that church. And so they want to preach the gospel. So they come to this location, this very long classroom. That's about how many students there would be. They meet two weeks each month for 12 months. This was the second location for classes to take place. Brother Jimmy sitting here teaching in both directions. And I know you can't see the man. That's Brother Krupacher. He's one of the instructors here. But next to him, Brother John's blocking him. I wish I'd had a better picture. But next to him is a man. He's opening up his Bible. He's taking notes. I saw him for two days. And it was the very last lesson that was taught in that location. The Lord's invitation is offered. Someone's told what they must do to become a Christian. And he stands up. I said, brother, I thought he was a Christian. He said, they're Brother, brother Krupacher. No, he's a denominational preacher. And he realized there's but one church. And he had been in an error. And so he wanted to become a Christian that day. For such a time as this. How do we not know? God knows. How do we not know that that was set up in that location in that day with that lesson from the Bible and maybe no other day in which that man might have heard the truth? And if we had said, that's, that's too much, it's too big of a deal, it costs too much, there's too many people, what if those excuses had been made? What if no one was willing to preach the truth? That sounds a little extreme, but how do we not know at that moment, that time, that deliverance would be offered through the preaching of the truth? For such a time as this, you have young and old, you have men and women, this is just one picture after one lesson. There was an instance where there were about 20 or so after the lesson was taught that responded. 
in total, I don't remember how many were baptized in two days here, but they were almost one right after the other going down into the water to be baptized. For such a time as this. The last location is in Rampa. I guess you might say in a way that's sort of the headquarters. That's where Brother John lives. They have the compound there. They have um, a section for the boys to live. They have a section for the girls to live. And they have some widows. And then the very large church building here. There are very many members that meet at this location on the Lord's Day. We taught the same lessons here. You've got a different group of preachers that are meeting. This was the very last lesson. This was on forgiveness, uh, repentance and forgiveness. And there's a door up here to the side. You can't see that door. But I'm preaching. I look outside and I see we have some visitors. And they're walking along the edge of the building over there. And I'm not alarmed by it. But all of a sudden a visitor came right through that door. And these two men can't see that visitor because the door is open. And I look and nobody sees it. And I pointed over there. And they looked. And the monkey that came in was going to come in. He wanted to repent. The lesson was on repentance. And they get up and they get the monkey out. And I look over at Brother Solomon who's translating. I said, Brother, the monkey wanted to repent. And he laughed and many laughed. And I said, that monkey would repent before some individuals who understand and know will repent. But we had all those men there. They had this location and one other. We were teaching the same lesson. This is that second building. This is out back of that property. There's a college there, an engineering college. And there's what we might call a high school. So many buildings in this location. And you have this room filled with men also teaching the same lessons. Here's a man asking a question after the lesson's over with. The Lord's invitation is offered for such a time as this in Rampa. There are 14 after that one lesson who wanted to be baptized for the mission of sins. How do we not know in that location, in that time, in that day, in that lesson from the Word of God that these people responded to the Lord's invitation? This was one of the lessons inside of the building. You see there are quite a bit of people here, men and women, young and old alike. And this man was standing down here. There's a closer picture of him there. And Brother John says, Brother, what are you doing? A man's been preaching one of the congregations for three years. And he tells Brother John, he said, Brother, I, I lied. He said, I'm not a Christian. He'd been preaching. We say, well, do they not know? Do they not check this man out? We take the man's word for it. He said he had become a Christian in Kakanata, which is back near Katamuru, the second place we were. And he came from Kakanata, and he says, I'm a Christian. And they took the man's word for it. He says he's a Christian, believe him. He's been preaching for three years. And he responded that day, in that time, and said, brother, I've lied. I'm not a Christian. And so he put on Christ in baptism and became a New Testament Christian. Again, for such a time as this, what if this had not taken place? What if the lessons had not been taught? What if he had not arrived there? So many things that you and I don't know. Maybe it was in that time, in that situation, for such a time as this, that he decided to no longer live in a lie, but to confess his sins, repent, and to be baptized for the remission of his sins. We opened many church buildings. This is one of the 12th. And this little building was built by the Zion Congregation. You're familiar with them. We went out into the country, and we went. This is when we traveled over the mountain I told you earlier. Steve and I went over, and this is out in the middle of farmland. There's not any villages really, really close. You'd have to walk a pretty good ways. But here's this building, and over to the side, there's a picture that says flood relief. Back in July and August, when the flood waters came, this location is two 
miles from the river. Two miles. And this was on dry ground. Just to the west of here, there's a village, a small village. It was underwater. Just a little bit further west, they had about 10 to 12 feet of water. You can still see the silt on the palm trees as we drove by and how deep the water was. And this location was used for flood relief. There were about 25 that day when we opened this building. Again, you're, you're, Steve is preaching that day. And you look and you say, well, these are all Christians. There's a good number of people here at this location. I'm glad they have this building to worship. I'm sitting looking outside. There's a woman out there. She's rocking a baby. She's used a sari, which is a, a, a women's clothing, and tied it up and made a hammock. She's rocking the baby, and she's cooking food there. And they're going to eat after we leave, and Brother Steve preaches, and six respond to the Lord's invitation. Here's a building that didn't exist a few months ago in a location that was used for flood relief. And it was set up for us to go that day and to preach. How do we not know at that moment of that time that opportunity for such a time as this. As we got ready to leave, John said, Brother, that's the preacher's home. I sat and looked out the door that's on the side. There's a little, the door's over there. And I looked out there and I saw that woman cooking. And I had no idea until we got in the car. And he said, Brother, he lives further back towards the river and he lost everything. And so he could have said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to move somewhere else. I've got to find more, another employment. I can't do this. I don't have a place to live. I can't afford it. He's willing to live right there in that pencil beside the church building so that he can continue to serve the Lord. And what if he didn't live there? What if he had given up? Who knows? They're going to build him a little building out beside there in the future in a place uh, more stable for him to live. These are some of the buildings and locations that Brother Steve opened. Remember, we opened 12 buildings, so these are some of the other buildings. To give you an idea what the church buildings look like, so you can see the members of the congregation, great smiles on their face, young and old. They're very, very thankful to have those buildings. A lot of good work will be done with the use of those buildings. This is one location I went to. This is one of the buildings. It wasn't really a new build, but this was one of the 12 in which money was sent for. This is a short little video clip. I want you to see how many people are sitting there. And that's not the, this is the full extent of the building. That's a big building. There are a lot of people there. We were there for the third addition to that building. The third time they had to add on to that building. The man that was pictured there had the microphone. He was leading singing. He's the preacher. He's also one of the elders. He averages about 50 converts a year. He's active. And they've had to build onto that building initially and then two more times. Three times. Three times something's been done to that building. And we were there for that day. And all those people are lined up. And you notice how, how many people there were. A lot of people in that location. We also visited flood-affected areas. Remember I told you in July, August, we sent over 76,000 for flood relief. This was the location that Steve and I went to even further west. You saw the building that Zion built. That's where the station had been for flood relief. This is on the other side of the river. This is about a mile from the river, but on the west side of the river. The water was about 10 feet at the time this picture was taken. There's the children's home there. The floodwaters extend way on out of it. This is a mile away from the river, and it's about 10 feet deep the time that picture's taken. This is primarily where the resources went to help 
The bottom floor is where the preacher lived. They lost everything they had. Everything. Gone. All the children. Everything they had. Either washed away in the flood or destroyed by the water. And so it was a big deal when we were able to provide aid for this place, this location. This is what it looked like. Of course, the water had receded a little bit, but Brother Franklin, the preacher there, a young man, he made sure all the children were out, all the members were out. He was the last person to stay. And he was actually up on a rooftop waiting for the boats to come in. This picture was taken as they came to get him. So the waters had receded a little bit. That's still about six and a half feet deep. And you can see what it looks like there. And that's what it looked like when we arrived that day. They had flowers thrown everywhere. There were so many people. The second floor is where the congregation meets to worship. And it was packed. And people were standing on the sides and standing out back. And they said, Brother, preach. And all I thought was, there's water in the plan. Those folks had been through a lot. Flood-affected area. God's always had water in His plan. And even though water destroys and damages, it did not damage their spirit and their service to God. And water saves and we're obedient to the will of God. They provided food for many people in that location. That's inside the church building. You can see they have flood relief distribution there. So it encourages the brethren, but also great works were done for those who are not Christians and opening up doors to help those. And then you see all the children here receiving some school supplies and blankets and such. That would be the probably the majority extent of what they owned. This is outside. The flood waters earlier were up to this point. I'm six foot four. You can see how much higher. So the waters were very high. The children live in that place. You walk in, it's just beds and little foot lockers. And these children received uh, additional things from us. When we were there, we gave them backpacks and some, some blankets and such. But I want you to notice that boy standing right there. He's the tallest and he's the oldest. He's 14 years old. I don't know what happened to his parents. Very likely they died in the flood. Or they'd abandoned him because they couldn't take care of him. And he's the one of many children there, but he's 14. And it was extra meaningful to me because I have a 14-year-old. And when I met him and sat there with him inside his room, and I looked at him and I said, that's my son right there. That's my son. How do we not know that that location, that children's home, the flood relief that was provided, the opportunity for him to live in that safe place and to learn the gospel every day, how do we not know he's there for such a time as this? It's very likely that he'll become a Christian. 95% of the children do. And many of them go on to work in locations and to help build the church up. How do we not know that he'll be a gospel preacher and he'll be able to reach thousands upon thousands of souls for such a time as this, even in flood relief and de terrible times? Orphans and widows here in Rampa, they're the girls doing their schoolwork. They're learning Hindi, Telugu, English, math, and science. And their work was way over my head. I tried to look at and understand. Of course, I could understand English, but they're doing their homework. Not a single girl was whispering. Not a single girl was cutting up and laughing. They were all focused, and there wasn't a single adult sitting there watching them and making sure they were paying attention. It's amazing. There's the children at the home outside of Rampa. They're there safe. These are girls in Katamuru. Uh, we had some communication. We did signs and did some funny things, and they laughed, and we had a good time with these girls. They wanted their picture taken. Here are the boys in Rampa. They're sitting inside doing their schoolwork. Every single boy opened up their notebook, and they wanted us to see it. 
and I felt like I can't go without saying something, so I would comment in something positive and truthful about their schoolwork. These boys and Toonie and the girls on the other side, they wanted to sing a song for us, and they were down on the ground, and they were up jumping, they were spinning around, I don't know what they were saying, but they were happy, and they were singing a song for us. And the widows in Rampa, there are about 40 that live there, and I want to show you this lady. I know the picture's blurry, but she's 90 years old. In April, we met her, and I told you about her. She never misses a widow's prayer meeting. She's memorized many scripture. She can't read. We were there in Rampa for two days, and so we're going to the church building. We're getting the car and riding. It's about four miles, so walking it would take a, a little bit of time. You zigzag through town and try not to get hit by the cars. And she walked to the church building. She refused to get a ride. And she'd do that some days twice each day. And on the Lord's Day, she's walking over there and worshiping during the week when they're going over there to study. She's walking 90 years old. I know not everybody who's 90 has the help to do it, but we can't even get people who are healthy and well able to get in their car and drive a couple of minutes and worship the Lord. And I think about this lady right here who could easily say, yes, I'll get in the car. Or I just don't feel like going today, and maybe rightly so, but I was very encouraged by that. The Lord wills October 30th, that's a Monday, we'll leave to go for a longer stint this time. There are five or six of us who are going to go, and we ask for your prayers as we prepare to go and to do the Lord's will again for such a time as this. Maybe, maybe at that time, that places we visit, Maybe the only opportunity someone ever has to hear the gospel. We don't know. So we're going to go and we're going to do the Lord's will. We've talked about it several times, shared many pictures with you, show, told you about many places, and we kept emphasizing for such a time as this, for such a time as this in India. What about for such a time as this in this congregation? How do you not know that you exist right here on this highway? That you live where you live, you work where you work, you know the people that you know for such a time as this. Maybe only this congregation and the work that's done here can reach people. We don't do it and say, look at us, we're so great. We don't go with that attitude. We simply step up and say, Lord, I'm going to do your will. I'm going to stand in the place before the king, so to speak, and do what I can because it's the right thing to do. How do you not know in your neighborhood the people you come in contact with for such a time as this. Maybe no one else and no other time could do what you are able to do in glorifying God and teaching others about the truth. And of course, what about this evening? Maybe there's someone here this very day, at this time, these scriptures. It's not about what I say or do. It's not about what the elders say or do. It's about the time and opportunity God's provided for you. For such a time as this, this evening. Maybe you're not a Christian. You realize after you're seeing what's going on, doing the Lord's will in India, what's going on here in this location, doing the Lord's will here, you realize I need to become a Christian. I need to have my sins washed away. So you know you must do what Jesus says, to believe that he is, because he says, if you don't believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. Are you willing to repent of your sins, to leave the lifestyle and the way you've lived, and you say, I'm going to give myself to him, and I'm going to do it his way, and I'm going to serve him in every way. You repent of your sins, you confess him as your Lord and Savior, 
and you're obedient to his will. Mark 16, 16 records, Jesus says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And you want to do that this evening. And right now is the opportunity for you. Your announcements. We have to mention the good and the bad. And there were several sad things that were mentioned about young people. We don't use this as a scare tactic to be unrealistic, but maybe this evening you leave this place. And this is the opportunity tonight. And you leave here this evening and you don't obey the will of God. That you don't make it home. You don't wake tomorrow for another day. And again, we don't do this as a scare tactic to be unrealistic, but listen to the announcements. How many people, young people, never thought that they would be in the situation they're in. Maybe you are a Christian and you've not been faithful to the Lord. And you realize, I'm here right now, and I want to serve Him, and I want to do what's right, and He's given me an opportunity for such a time as this.